say you love this country, you say you really care, but America is dying. I don't see no love nowhere. You say you love this country and the freedoms that we share, but America is dying. I don't see no love nowhere. They say America is dying. They say America is dead. But there's a lot of people lying. And there's a lot left unsaid But we got people in the streets Freezing while they sleep with no shoes on their feet And we got people in the sheets Cheating on their wives and they're speaking with deceit Let's go! And we got crooked politicians Crooked as a question mark destroying our traditions Yup! And we got people in positions Teaching all our kids that their gender's a decision No way! No way! We got a media that lies 24-7 fake news on your minds Socialism's on the rise, left-wing nut jobs crying all the time, all the time. But we gotta stand up tall, yep. head up high, gotta build that wall. that wall Like it's America solo, red, white, and blue, and we mockin' like a mofo But let me keep it real for a minute, let me talk about the real reason that I did it Let me talk about the gospel now that I'm with it And let's talk about the fact that we need Jesus for a minute, and that's the problem that we got yeah. We lost our thrones and we lost our thoughts Man, we lost our homes and we lost our hearts And we lost all hope and we forgot about God Bring him back, bring him back bring You say you love this country You say you really care But America is dying I don't see no love, no We've been given one chance to pass the torch To do the dance, freedom's last chance We can't fail the only man who's all right by the people And stuck it to the man I fought the fight against the evil if you can't see past the media smoke screen, you're funny like a clown. Joke a man, jump around, joke a man. Media smoke, joke a man out, joke a man singing. You can blame it on anything. You can blame it on the right, you can blame it on the left, you can blame it on anyone. Till there's no one left to blame but yourself. Don't let the hate throw. Don't let it take you past the point where you're too blind to see America is dying. show themes. The first theme tonight is I'm going to hit the news like for the first 30 minutes of give you some uh, oh, direction of what this country has been doing and is about to do. The second hour and a half of the show will be spooky stories from people calling in and giving some stories. I'll tell some stories and hopefully Kaiser will be on. But let me tell you about my week. I spent the weekend here at the Ranch 2.0 with some amazing friends. We had such a blast. We shared stories from our military days, told ghost stories around the campfire, hiked the Wampus Cat Holler, which you guys will hear about Wampus Cat tonight, where the adults, you know, we successfully showed the children 
what not to do in climbing a steep hill on their stomachs. Yep, you heard me right. They were climbing uphill while falling on their stomachs downhill. <laughs> then a couple of the adult women decided to uh, go up the same hill, but they were more graceful. They did not uh, land on their tuchus or on their bellies to slide back down. The food was amazing. And just like any other gathering, there was plenty leftovers. We filled three coolers full of food and there's still food on the countertop, which by the way, I have not um, cleaned my house since everyone has left and it definitely shows. But because we are who we are and what we do and what I did in my former portion of my career of fighting against human trafficking, we have a neighbor who was just so gracious enough to have us served with legal paperwork to stop us from building an easement road onto our own property. Yep. And this was done because an evil wealthy man has decided that he is God and he is used to bullying people around and he has not been able to bully us for the three years we've owned this property. And he wants us to submit to him, bow down, kiss his ring so he can steal our property. And I do not say that lightly because it is even in the paperwork that for his punitive damages for us living on our own property and his pain and suffering for him having to see us every day, he wants the court to grant him a quit claim deed to our property. You heard that right. Welcome to the Commonwealth of Kentucky. And the legal documents were basically telling us that we weren't permitted to walk on, construct on, or breathe in the direction of this man's property, which is adjoining our property, which right next to his property is where we were building our easement road. So we got a cease and desist order there. And therefore, we could not host the planned event for this weekend. And people were coming from literally all over the country for this event of like-minded people and just sitting around the campfire and telling war stories and etc. So we detoured our easement and successfully gathered onto our property from a different area of our property, which was a little bit more inconvenient, but we all did it. We all made it and we had an epic time. It was so much fun. So tonight we're going to have a two hour show. The first 30 minutes is going to be a short news report on how one simulation of an uncontrolled disease outbreak concluded with riots and National Guard on the streets. This simulation was in 2001. The last hour and a half is going to be stories of the spooky kind given by myself and Kaiser and possibly a few other callers that 
have promised to call in and make me look good. I look forward to um, Kaiser calling in. He was here for the last two days. We had a blast. So, hey everyone, glad you came. Sit around my campfire, welcome to Around the Campfire with Kate. We are another week closer to the election of the century. And tonight we're gonna to talk about Operation Dark Winter. The introduction music is titled America is Dying, but it's not too late by Dave Bray and Jeremy Harrell. This show is a live call-in show. So if you wanna call in after the 30 minutes of the broadcast, after the news, please feel free, especially if you have a spooky story to tell because it would be like amazingly awesome to hear your stories too. The number is 786-245-8127. Or you can call in using Skype through PSN Radio. That's P-S-N Radio. That number again is 786 245 8127. Let's get right into this. Um, during the last debates, Biden had mentioned something that kind of caught my attention, caught a lot of people's attention. He said, we're about to go into a dark winter. And for anyone who isn't like um, conspiracy theorist minded, um, dark winter probably meant to them, oh, Gosh, yes, it's going to be a dark, cold, dreary, icky winter. But they were talking about and debating about COVID-19 at the time that Biden made this comment. Operation Dark Winter started on June 22, 2001. A group of well-known U.S. officials and a handful of senior policymakers gathered at Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland for a senior-level senior exercise that simulated a biological weapons attack. And this particular bioweapons attack was supposed to be against the United States, and it was supposed to be an outbreak of the deadly smallpox. This was designed by John Hopkins Center for Civil Civilian Biodefense Strategies, which is now called the Center for Health Security, and the Washington-based Center for Strategic and International Studies, or CSIS. It was a day and a half long called Operation Dark Winter. The simulation was conducted to gauge how senior leaders would respond to such an attack, and it included high-level participants as Senator Sam Nunn, who in this simulation, he played the president. The former White House advisor, David Jurgen, he played the national security advisor. And the retired career diplomat, Frank Wisner, he played the secretary of state. But dark winter has since become legendary in senior policymaking circles in Washington for a different reason. It has regularly been cited by its designers and participants at the clearest exhibit of 
the spiraling stresses and potential social collapse that could be sparked by a public health crisis. Dark winter, which stipulates a small smallpox attack by an unknown assailant is not COVID-19, which is a disease that's inadvertently spread by human contact, which everybody should already know. But of course, um, the fallout from the coronavirus pandemic bears an eerie resemblance to this simulation in 2001. Leaders were hampered by an inability to address a crisis that they had not foreseen. Um, quote, we'd been much more comfortable with a terrorist bombing, unquote. None, the previous person I just talked about, he later said in congressional testimony, national decision-making driven by data and expertise from the medical and public sectors, management operations limited by swift and unpredictable spread of the disease, and a limited stockpile of vaccines, a healthcare system that lacks the surge capacity to deal with mass casualties, increased tensions between state and federal authorities, the rapid spread of misinformation on cures and treatments for the outbreaks, and the only way to treat smallpox is just do not get it. The difficulty of controlling unpredicted flights of civilians from an in, in from in infected areas, domestic turmoil sparked by political uncertainty with sporadic rioting quelled by National Guard units in large urban areas as grocery stores are shuttered, and an increasing reliance on the willingness and unwillingness of individual citizens to self-quarantine to stop the spread of contagion. This was all in the simulation. The dark winter exercise ended on the second day of the simulation after three long sessions and purposely without a resolution. But then the exercise's goal was not to predict the future, but to dramatize the issues faced by the federal government during a nationwide health crisis. It was, it met, was masterfully succeeded, showing that what begins as a localized disease outbreak of smallpox that was supposed to, in this simulation, appear in Oklahoma City and then two other densely, excuse me, populated urban areas can quickly become a crisis that envelops the entire nation and then the world. The state borders become choke points, crowded with people fleeing the disease. Canada and Mexico close their borders with the United States and foreign nations restrict restrict travel to the um, uh, all American citizens. This is all familiar now. Um, we have tried to, we can leave the United States. We, we can fly out of the United States, but foreign nations are refusing American citizens. Um, I cannot go to South America. There are certain places in Europe that I cannot go. Their borders are closed to us. And this is not the worst case scenario with the collapse of the American democracy, but democratic institutions are severely tested and strained. And after Operation Dark Winter was concluded, the participants drew clear lessons from the exercise, focusing on the federal government's lack of preparation for a public health crisis. Now, folks, this was 2001. This is the Bush's administration. And I believe that was Bush Jr. And 
they knew about this, that this has been planned. And did you know it is a known fact, at least now it is, that Anthony Fauci was involved. I just found that tidbit of information just a little peculiar. The lessons drawn from the 2001 Operation Dark Winter exercise provided a stark preview of what the United States would face in 2020. The unfamiliarity of government governing officials with public health issues and the medical options available to address them, you know, a likely lack of good information in the earliest moments of the crisis, is the outbreak localized? How many Americans are infected? Where are they located? What health resources are available to treat them? An unfamiliarity with the healthcare system and how medical care is actually delivered, the indecision surrounding the impact of quarantine orders, or should they voluntarily or involuntarily be required to wear a mask or be quarantined? Should they be local, statewide, or national? How should they be enforced? The necessity of providing a medical surge capability that would alleviate the strain on hospitals and healthcare providers. The United States military can build hospitals and quickly. We've all known that, um, especially with the big ships, um, USS Mercy and, and USS Comfort. But who's going to staff them? And the need to act quickly and decisively to identify the threatening virus, and more crucially, who is not. Now, these lessons rippled out into the policymaking community, particularly after its participants and designers briefed key figures in the Bush administration and members of Congress on their findings, including in the briefing was a series of grimly realistic videotapes of the exercise that dramatize its likely effects. Yet, quote, it is not pleasant, unquote. A senior member of uh, John Hemra, who is a senior member of the CSIS, when he told Congress, and he was introducing the videos, uh, one of those who agreed, according to retired Air Force Colonel Randall Larson, who co-designed the simulation for CSIS, was Vice President Dick Cheney. And he sat through the presentation just nine days after the 9-11 attack in his office at the Eisenhower Executive Building. Before offering his own judgment, he said, quote, this is terrifying, unquote. Operation Dark Winter, quote, was an exercise designed to push the system to failure in order to learn about its vulnerabilities, unquote. That's significant. Quote, the, the, the lessons of Dark Winter shaped biological preparedness policy for the next 10 years, but it is always difficult to ensure that the preparedness is sustained over time, unquote, said Andrew Lakoff, a professor of sociology at the University of Southern California, who he studied Operation Dark Winter at and its impact on the United States. Trained as a sociologist and anthropologist of science and medicine, Lakoff is the author of 
unprepared global health in a time of emergency. An account of global and national responses to disease outbreaks from the SARS epidemic through the spread of the Ebola virus. So it's no surprise that Lackoff has been following the national response to the coronavirus pandemic very closely and worrying that the crisis portrayed by Operation Dark Winter is being replayed now and what is clearly not a simulation. But not surprisingly, Lackoff's worries are reflected among a growing number of healthcare providers, medical professionals, and policymakers who not only cite Operation Dark Winter as one of the earliest and most well-known disease simulations, but who note that it spawned a handful of follow-on exercises over the next two decades that should have, but seemingly did not, prepare public officials for COVID-19 pandemic. Quote, dark winter is extremely important to the United States, unquote, Larson told a newspaper source. But there were any number of follow-up exercises right up until very recently, including one in 2019 called Event 201 that simulated what is happening right now with the coronavirus. In fact, by one count, there have been no less than four separate U.S. simulations that prefigured these events that has unfolded in central China in January of this year. In 2005 was Operation Atlantic Storm. It was organized by the Center for Biosecurity at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, simulated an international outbreak of smallpox pandemic, which, as opposed to the domestic smallpox terrorism attack simulated by Dark Winter, then there's Operation the SPARS, S-P-A-R-S, pandemic of 2025 to 2028. That was conducted in 2017, and the tested medical responses to the outbreak of a novel coronavirus in St. Paul, Minnesota. That was where they did this simulation. Uh, Operation Claude X or Clade X, C-L-A-D-E, was hosted by John Hopkins Center for Health Security in 2018. It was proposed worldwide coronavirus outbreak with no vaccine, and which, according to Tong, Tom Inglesby, the center's director, was designed to, quote, provide experimental learning, unquote, for the Trump administration officials. And in October of 2019, Event 201, Operation Event 201, presented an exercise that started with an outbreak of a novel coronavirus, a high-impact respiratory pathogen pandemic, as its designers premised, that spread globally and that precinctly forecast COVID-19. Event 201 was basically an exercise that forecasts economic troubles and a pandem pandemic would likely cause and uh, proposed a series of economic preparedness steps that the United States and global economic actors could take in responding to the crisis that we're facing now. 
According to the exercise, which is Operation Event 201, the pandemic, which is a respiratory illness that starts, supposedly starts in Brazil, this was what the exercise was, and ends up killing 65 million people globally and would place outsized economic strains on international medical supply chains unless there were broader cor corporation co cooperation, I cannot read, among global health organizations and coordination among supply chain providers. Operation Event 201 showed that an economic response to a coronavirus outbreak would mirror the medical response gamed out in Operation Dark Winter with an economic response that would be hampered in its earliest days by a lack of good or decent information, which would, in turn, destabilize markets and seed monetary instability. Does any of this make any sense? Well, it should make sense, but can you see that these quote, simulations, unquote, have come about. The exercise presaged the events of COVID-19 that would take place within months of the simulation's end. Quote, it's very clearly showed that would take a global response. It was uncannily accurate, unquote, Larson said. I think these simulations, these exercises, are critically important and absolutely crucial, said Gigi Quick Granville, who is a senior scholar at the Center for Health Security. Quote, and I think that's true because to really digest what is happening in a pandemic, you have to really experience it, unquote. Those are scary words. It shows me. I don't know about you guys, but in my tinfoil hat head here, this shows me that they wanted the world and United States American citizens to experience this pandemic before we could actually intensely understand it. Really? Okay, but even given the intensity to the series of simulations that began with Operation Dark Winter in 2001. Granville notes that the current pandemic has exposed what the simulations have predicted. Quote, the response to COVID-19 was slowed by a lack of testing, which led to a lack of situational awareness. The truth of this, the lesson, is that we just did not take the coronavirus reports coming out of China seriously enough, soon enough. We just weren't quick enough, and now we're scrambling to catch up. It is a real problem for hospitals, which are bearing the brunt of the mis this mistake. We needed to surge help into our nation's hospitals right away, and we didn't. It didn't need to happen, unquote. Well, that is interesting because China, seriously enough, did not give us the information that we demanded? Or did they just cleverly cleverly refuse to acknowledge this? It is not the United States' fault that 
China lied. But of course, the slow response outlined by what Granville is trying to say is bound to be a central issue in any after action report as it was in each, each of the simulations it started with Operation Dark Winter. The issue is, after all, deeply political as Operation Dark Winter has showed and all of the other wonderful little simulations that they've done. It's not just lives that are at stake. It's the ability of the Americans, it's the form of government to respond deftly to a nationwide medical crisis. Quote, in the earliest days of the crisis, it was clear that the response was insufficiently proactive at the federal level, unquote, Lakoff argued. Really? What kind of response were they supposed to give when they were given inaccurate information from China? The United States had to use our resources to find out and discover what this virus was before we could respond. If I have a cold and nobody knows what that cold is, and someone else says, it is not a cold, it is a broken toe. And nobody knows the difference. Let's just say we're back in the 1700s, who knows? It is a bad scenario, but you get the gist. If you do not understand what a cold is, you have to research that out to figure out what a cold is. But if somebody who knows what you are going through knows what that is and is refusing to tell you, you still have to do your research to find out what it is. And then the people who know what it is, then they come forward and say, oh yeah, well, oops, I just didn't tell you. Now you know. Well, let's quote this. Quote, over the last century, we have developed, developed a system for governing crisis situations that has saved us from falling into dictatorship in times of emergency. We have shown that a democracy can respond as well as a dictatorship to emergencies. But I wonder if our system will hold up in the face of the current crisis. I certainly hope so. Unquote. Well, for two decades of pandemic war games, they have failed the United States. They're blaming Donald Trump. But it started in the Bush administration. If it started in the Bush administration, and they've been doing this for two decades, can somebody please explain to me how it's Donald Trump's fault? And then the scenarios foresaw the leaky travel bans, a scramble for vaccines, and disputes between state and federal leaders. But none could anticipate the current levels of dysfunction in the United States. What is the United States supposed to do when they do not know what this pandemic, or excuse me, it wasn't a pandemic at the time, what this disease was? Like all pandemics, it starts out small. The simulation 
started out as a novel coronavirus that emerged in Brazil, jumping from bats to pigs to farmers before making its way to a big city with an international airport. Interesting that that's how the simulation was. Think back to when the coronavirus that we thought started it in China. Did they not say that it started from bats? And did they not say that it started in a farmer's market of some kind? Well, this simulation jumped from bats to pigs to farmers. It's a little bit too creepy for my liking. From there, in the simulation, infected travelers carried it to the United States, Portugal, and China. Within 18 months, the coronavirus had spread around the world. 65 million people were dead, and the global economy was in a freefall. Interesting that they called it coronavirus in 2001. Hmm. This is a fictitious scenario of what I just said. Here's another one, dubbed Operation Event 201. This played out in a New York City conference center before a panel of academics, government officials, and business leaders just last October. Those in attendance were visibly shaken, in which Ryan Moorhard wanted to happen. A biosecurity specialist at the World Economic Forum in Geneva, Switzerland, excuse me, more hard worried that world leaders weren't taking the threat of a pandemic seriously enough. He wanted to force them to confront the potentiality of immense human economic toll of a global outbreak. Interesting, because right after that, we have coronavirus, a world pandemic. Quote, we called the event Operation Event 201 because we're seeing up to 200 epidemic events per year. And we knew that eventually one, would, one of them would cause a pandemic, unquote, Morehard says. The timing of the choice of a coronavirus proved uh, too coincidental. Just two months later, China reported a mysterious pneumonia outbreak in the city of Wuhan. That was the start of the COVID-19 pandemic that has killed so far, what they're saying, 650,000 people. Morehard was not the only one sounding the alarm. Operation Event 201 was one of dozens of simulations and evaluations, which we just talked about was over the last two decades, that have highlighted the risks of a pandemic and identified gaps in the ability of governments and organizations around the world to respond. The exercises anticipated several failures that have played out in the management of COVID-19, including leaky travel bans, medical equipment shortages, does this all sound familiar, massive disorganization, misinformation, and a scramble for vaccines. But the scenarios did not anticipate some of the problems that have plagued the pandemic response, such as a shortfall of diagnostic tests and world leaders who reject the advice of public health specialists. Most strikingly, 
biosecurity researchers did not predict that the United States would be among the hardest hit countries. On the contrary, last year, leaders in the field ranked the United States top in the Global Health Security Index, which graded 195 countries in terms of how well prepared they were to fight outbreaks on the basis of more than 100 factors. But they're all blaming Donald Trump. Really? Trump did say that we are rated number one as he spoke of the SARS-CoV-2 that was already spreading undetected across the country. But it is not his fault. Uh, SARS started in the Obama administration, if I have, if I remember correctly. Now, as COVID-19 cases in the United States surpass 4 million with more than 150,000 deaths, the country has proved itself to be one of the most dysfunctional. The scenarios still hold lessons for how to curb this pandemic, but for how to respond better if there's a next time. Deadly pandemics are inevitable, says Tom Fryden. He's a former director of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC. He says, what is not inevitable is that we will continue to be underprepared. Now, a lot of people think that this is more than scenarios, more than a game. The pandemic uh, simulations first started gaining popularity in the 2000s, and biosecurity and public health specialists took their cue from war game exercises used by our military in an effort to stress test health systems and see what could go wrong and spare policymakers, scare policymakers into fixing the problems. In these roundtable events, academics, business leaders, and government officials made real-time decisions to deal with expanding crisis, laid out in television news-style reports. Two early simulations involved biological attacks in which other countries unleashed smallpox in the United States. Operation Dark Winter in 2001 and Atlantic Storm in 2005 were orchestrated by biosecurity think tanks in the United States attended by influential leaders and WHO, the World Health Organization, Madeleine Albright, the Secretary of State under former President Bill Clinton, and Anthony Fauci. Find that very interesting. During the course of dark winter and Operation Atlantic Storm, the participants found that the power struggles between federal and state leaders bogged down a health response as the epidemic doubled and quadrupled. I can keep going and I can drumbeat this into everybody's heads, but I think we're all smart enough who listen to this program or listen to PSN Radio, Patriot Radio, iHeart Radio. We're all smart enough to figure out that this sort of thing was not just a scenario. Let's take, for example, in January of 2007, the World Bank and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in Seattle, Washington, backed a pandemic simulation at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. It was a gathering of global leaders in business, politics, and academia. The exercise highlighted a need for better coordination between companies, governments, and nonprofit organizations when it came to managing global supply chains for its medical equipment, diagnostic testings, treatment, and vaccines. 
The scenario coincided with the launch of an Oslo-based foundation to develop and distribute vaccines for emergency emerging infections called the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. Anything receiving funds from the Gates Foundation and the UK biomedical charity welcome and countries including Japan and Germany. I hold suspect in my head. It is clear to me that these were not just simulations. This quote, pandemic, unquote, is what I believe other people have been calling a plandemic. This was planned. And what I'm, if what I'm reading to you does not convince you, look it up for yourself. They wanted to scare us. The officials, or at least that one official, came out and she said, we have to experience it before we can understand it. Those are her own words. People are experiencing it all right. They lost loved ones. Our country was shut down. People were in a panic over the flu. The flu, people. Influenza. There are so many different types of corona influenza that die every year. Only this was a pandemic. I'm not not going to go any further on this. I could go for days and days and days and I am sure that Angel does not want me doing that. Excuse me. The pandemic in any of the simulations have failed to convince any policymakers to act. How can a policymaker act on a simulation? What remains to be seen to me is going back to the beginning of the broadcast where I am talking about and discussing the last debate between President Trump and Vice President Joe Biden. I want to throw up when I say that man's name. And they are debating about the coronavirus. And Biden warns, and I quote, we are about to go into a dark winter, unquote. Really? How would he know? He is not even a man of authority. Dark winter. Come on, people, look it up. I am going to conclude, conclude this portion of the broadcast and turn it on over to any callers who wish to call in and tell spooky stories. I think the spooky story I just told of the simulations is spooky enough for Halloween. But somebody keeps knocking and I'm ignoring them, hoping they will go away. Um, (laughs) If you want to call in and tell a spooky story, 
The phone number is 786-245-8127. Or you can call in using Skype through PSN Radio. That number again is 786-245-8127. And while we wait for anyone to call in, I am going to tell a spooky story. One of the stories that I told was of the Wampus Cat. Now, I live in the Appalachian Mountains. And hopefully I'm not about to lose anything here. Um, there's a legend in the Appalachian Mountains called the Wampus Cat. Depending on who you talk to and what legend you listen to, the Wampus Cat could be anything from a five-foot humanoid cat-like creature, apparently walking on two legs or running on four, or a Bigfoot-type creature up to eight to nine feet tall with a cat-like face, totally furry, stink to high heaven, can run very quickly on four legs. Of course, if I had four legs, I could run very quickly too. And they can walk like a humanoid, like a human, be like a humanoid creature. But the story I'm going to tell you is a story that I had heard on YouTube about the Wampus Cat, and I'm probably going to butcher the story, but, you know, I'm not really going to care because everybody talks about the legend. The Wampus Cat. Now, back in the Indian days when there was no other civilization but Native American Indians, they had passed along this story of a creature, a hideous, hideous creature, that if any human saw this creature, they would lose their mind. Their sanity would be gone. This creature would take their soul. And all the person could do was just function. And that is it. It'd be like having a frontal lobotomy, if you know what anything about the brain. Um, the bravest brave from all of the Indian nations from the Appalachian area and they chose this one man. He had a wife and a family. They ch chose this one brave. Oh, he was the bravest of the brave. Handsome. Strong. He was the ultimate warrior. And they sent him out to destroy the Wampus Cat. And he left out. A couple of months went by and he had not returned. Five months went by. He had not returned. Seven or eight months, depending on which legend you listen to. And this man walked in to where this tribe and where his wife was. And it was the brave. But emotionally, the man was gone. They say he had no soul left. He was just wandering around and he was just functioning. 
the wife never got her husband back. So she went to the tribal elders and said she wanted to go find the wampus cat. She wanted revenge. She was going to kill it. She was going to destroy it. And this old shaman came up and he says something to the effect of, there is this mask that you wear when you face the wampus cat. It is terrified of this mask. It cannot take your soul when you wear this mask and you can kill the wampus cat. So the woman took the mask and she was granted permission to try to find and locate this creature. She was gone for several months. And as she was walking around in the woods, she heard a noise down by a, a, a stream or a river. And she was snuck up on whatever the noise was. And she saw this creature bending over, getting a drink of water. Oh, it was hideous. Then she jumped up and she ran towards it. She put the mask on and she ran towards it. And the cat screamed. And it was backing away from the woman. And the woman pounced on it. And I do not know how she killed the wampus cat or how she destroyed it. But she came back to the village and let all the village people know and the tribes know that the wampus cat was dead. And the legend is that the wampus cat haunts the hollers of these mountains looking for that Indian woman. And I tell you this story that I just did not do justice because at Ranch 2.0 there are many people who will not go into one of our haulers because they call it Wampus Cat Hauler. Now if you're on the West Coast or Midwest a hauler is basically a valley. If you are East Coast a hauler is a valley but we call it hauler. Or a hollow. It is a valley type. There's cliffs or hills or mountains on either side. And we have Wampus Cat Holler. And you say, but that's just a legend, Miss Kate. That's just a legend. Well, let me tell you something about that legend. Have I seen Wampus Cat? No. Have I seen tracks of the wampus cat? No. Have I heard the wampus cat in this area? No. But the locals have. There's a man who was raised in this area that lives just across the railroad tracks from my property. He refuses to go into that holler. He was in there one time. And he said something was watching him. He knew something was watching him. And he is not a man to be afraid. He was down in there hunting. He had a weapon. He had a gun. He could have felt secure with the weapons that he had. 
but he was not secure. And he refuses to go back into that holler. Now, I've been in that holler. And I have not felt a presence there. I have not seen anything. We took children and adults down in that holler yesterday. And all we did was play and have fun. We followed the stream upwards and we found a small little cave and found an underground um, tunnel, which I found very interesting that I did not know was there. But do I believe in the Wampus Cat? You bet I do. Because the first first time I say in my heart, it does not exist, guess what's going to come knocking on my door? Or screeching and meowing underneath my window? Or whatever noise it makes. So, that's the story of the Wampus Cat. Of course, you can go on YouTube, like I did, and find the story of the Wampus Cat. And you'll hear several different versions of what the Wampus Cat is. And joining me tonight is my special guest, Kaiser from Kaiser's Castle, uh, for Castle Talk right here on PSN Radio. Uh, Kaiser will be on again tonight at midnight so we can continue telling spooky stories for Halloween. Uh, Kaiser, are you on? Of course I am, sister. How are you doing there I'm at Kate's campfire? Doing really well. Nice and warm around this campfire. You know, you were here. Yes, I was. And by the way, the uh, um, Mr. and Mrs. M wanted to let me let me tell you, and I will have to do it this way. Uh, they are going to get their little fur face, and they've dropped everything off. They were there, too, and so were many others around Kate's campfire and there was much merriment, enjoyment and even a bad dose of my singing along with others, right? Is that what that was? Oh, okay. I know. I know you <laughs> thought it was the wolves howling. <laughs> it was the wolves howling <laughs> while you were and the coyotes. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that was Kaiser pretending like he knew how to sing. It was like, wow. Anyway, we're going to be I telling the definition of tone deaf. That is correct. <laughs> is that what? The, well, hey, you know, now I know that was really scary. We still have some people out here um, sitting around the campfire. Uh, maybe they'll call in and give a story or two. And maybe some other people will call in and give a story or two. I've already told the story of the Wampus Cat. And so, Kaiser, if you have a spooky story, I'd like to hear it. Oh, yes. I have a spook, spooky story. And uh, I had told this the other night, and I plum forgot about it. And it was a buddy of mine and me. You have we friends? were all thinking around the camp. Oh, yeah. Friends from when, <laughs> since I was 14 or so. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, yeah, long-lasting friends are the best friends. There's, a, there's an old adage, King's Fear men who are friends since childhood. And I'm sure that staying also goes for warrior sisters. But here's the point. We were uh, out hunting, hunting rabbits, I believe. It was rabbit season here in my great state. Shh. And, uh, 
were hunting wascally wabbits. And we just gotten done hunting, and as is particular in my haunts, uh, you just throw the guns in the back seat, and you grab the beer, and you open one up, and if you got some or you didn't, you have a beer, and then you leave. And we're sitting there talking about, you know, the hunt, and oh, look at the fluffy cottontail that I didn't get, or whatever, right? And uh, all of a sudden, uh, out of nowhere, uh, I have to set the tone first. Out There's, of nowhere. Yes, which is literally out of nowhere, and it's mm. the freakiest thing. Mm. Uh, I, I grew up at that time. I'd moved to a trailer park, and uh, it was situated fairly near. It was about a 20-minute bike ride, bicycle ride, into a town called Darbydale, and it's in Ohio. And it's right off State Route 665. And um, it's called Woollyburger Cemetery. And Woollyburger, and what uh, jogged the memory was the Wampus Cat walk we did to, uh, this weekend. And it was only the Woollyburger mask that killed the Wampus Cat. Yeah, maybe. We don't know. But here's the funniest part is um, this gentleman brought over from Europe his castle, his entire castle, and it, it was a legit castle. I never saw it. I mean, this happened like in the 1800s. And uh, he rebuilt it along something called Darby Creek. That's where the name Mulliburger Cemetery comes from because that cemetery is actually named New Philadelphia Cemetery. And there's federal land that surrounds it. There's like a scrimshaw of it that's forced uh, people to build on, but it's no longer federal land. It's, it's, uh, you know, it was able to be sold. And so they have these parking areas where you could hunt in. And also the farmers were allowed to farm at that time in the eighties on federal land. They just, you know, paid a fee or whatever it was for the, you know, I, I can't tell you I'm not a farmer. So basically Woollyburger was surrounded by cornfields at that time. And we're sitting in one of those little cutouts, hanging out right after got done hunting, talking crap to each other, drinking a beer, getting ready to go back. My buddy Kenny, well, he had his Grandma Pauline's uh, car with him. And uh, he was driving. And uh, so we're, we're sitting there talking about the hunt. And all of a sudden now... Woolleyburger Cemetery, unfortunately, became like a haven for, quote-unquote, devil worshippers. Ooh. Ooh. Not maybe devil they, worshippers. Maybe they were. Maybe they weren't. The world may never know. But the funniest part of it is that they're sitting there, corn, we're talking they didn't, it's not like they de-husked it. They... If there was a if there was devil worshippers, there had to have been hundreds because the car got hit with corn pulled fresh off the vines, you know, or the whatever you call it. The, oh the my gosh! And it just flew at the car, and uh, uh, it was hitting the car and stuff. And we're like, "What the heck?" And uh, all of a sudden, Kenny backs up, and as he backs up, 
out of there, there's this shape behind us. Neither of us really could tell what it was. And then it goes forward. And then it's in front of us. The same thing, except we had lights and it looked really so odd. So were there two of them or was it back behind your vehicle? And then all of a sudden it was in front of your vehicle. Don't know. Don't know. Oh, my because gosh. That's creepy. To the back. And then he backs up again, as I told the story, to get the heck, you know, back out. And he had to go forward again. So he's doing like a Z. You know what I'm saying? Right. And uh, he hits uh, the window, whatever it was. And we go rolling back to Grandma Pauline's freaked out. Oh, before that happened, being young teenagers, we get out and we just shoot when the corn's flying our shotguns. It was hilarious. You know, <laughs> all we had in there was rabbit shot. So if we did hit somebody, it didn't do anything. But the funny part is uh, we we get out and uh, we blast rounds and that's how we got into the front seat. Anyways, uh, we bounce out of there and we make it to Grandma Pauline, and that's when we knew what it was. What it's was it? The legend of Wooly Burger, because in that window that was broken, in the little crack crevice of it, I believe it was a Chrysler LeBaron that she owned, a white Chrysler LeBaron. And in the cracks and crevices around that window and in the, the hood was lodged a robe. It had weird writing on it. I believe if... I wanted out Kenny's name. She's passed away now, but uh, I'm sure that robe's still in the family. And she told us the story of Wooly Burger, and here's the story. The full robe? Or yeah. just a piece yeah. of it? No, it was completely full. It was just Good a robe. Lord. You got yeah. to keep the robe? I didn't. No, Kenny's grandma did. Grandma Pauline. That's when she told us the story. You know, that's that's an amazing way to get out of wrecking a car is go tell your grandma that the Wooly Burger jumped on the car and then prove it with a robe. He doesn't have to pay for the damages now. Grandma Pauline was like, boys, let me tell you what happened. That's the Wooly Burger. And here's the story of the Wooly Burger. And people can look this up. And a lot of people have the wrong story. I know the right story. Because Grandma Pauline was probably... 65, 70 years old, and that was in the 80s. So she had gotten this story from her mother, probably, who was alive during the times that these happened. So people, what's the story of the Wooly yeah, Burger? Yeah, people were dying in the town of bites. They were getting not bitten by like a vampire, but like actually being kind of eaten, predation. And it wasn't by any kind of animal that lived there because people were used to seeing people who got eaten or animals, livestock, by all different manner of animals. And uh, Wooly Burger had just finished everything up, you know, building his, his little castle and stuff and moved in. And uh, I guess he wasn't there when it moved, when the whole thing was brought over. And uh, that's why most of those houses now this is why this happened have their uh foundations are actually straight uh walls from that building because that 
is what they did. They tore down the building, his castle, and they only removed the stanchions from that part of Darby Creek. I believe it was in the early 2000s. And they were there still. I mean, if you were going to Trapper John's canoe livery and taking a canoe down the creek, um, you would have seen them back in those days. And uh, one of them was still erect to the wall of that little cliff area. Anywho, um, these people were dying, and they blamed it on Willieburg. So the uh, people that lived down in Darbydale, we used to call them Darbydaleians, uh, they stormed it, and they killed old Willieburg. And they say silver kills what he was, and it does, but you also, the one thing the myth never tells you about you have to shove a rock in its mouth and then bury it. Oh, because it why? Still come back because that way it can never eat again. And uh, that's just how the story goes. And she told us, and uh, this is truth, if you go to some of the older homes along the river, of, or not river, but the creek, Darby Creek, and then the offshoot of uh, that creek is called Hell's Branch. And uh, that that's an offshoot further up. And they say that the Wooly Burger runs on a full moon nightly because they said back in the day the devil worshippers uh, uh, disentombed him and pulled the rock. And I'm here to tell you uh, that I would like to say I believe, but I know it's true. And uh, so there be werewolves afoot, folks, in Darbydale. I remember a time in the state of Missouri, sorry, Missouri. Um, I grew up in Missouri and in the Ozarks, and there was this little creek. Well, to me, it was a little creek. And it was right after prom, and I was with my boyfriend, and we went necking, and just outside of town, again, was this little creek, but you had to go through this back road to hit, you know, Uncle Tom's barn on the left-hand side, then you make a right-hand turn at the oak tree to get to this certain spot that everybody went to. And we were there, and we got out of the vehicle, and we're holding hands like teenagers do. And we go down by the water, and we hear this splash. And we're not thinking anything of it. You know, maybe, you know, a deer or something's getting a slurp of water and fell into an area, and it went sploosh or whatever. And then, you know how you get scared? You know that there's nothing there. You can't, you, well, you cannot see anything, but you know something's there. And the hair starts standing on the back of your neck. That's oh, what yeah. we felt like. It was time to get in the car and lock the doors. Well, as we're strolling as fast as we could to get to the vehicle, we get inside the vehicle and we lock the doors and... Whatever it was, we could hear 
coming out of the water onto the road, walking towards the car. We could hear it, but we could not see it. The footfalls? Or was it rocks moving? What was it? You could hear you can hear it come out of the water, but we couldn't see anything. We could hear footsteps. You could hear, you know, when you start coming out of the water and your your body is all full of, of water and it's dripping down, that's the sound it made. And then you could hear the footsteps on the concrete coming towards the vehicle. And my boyfriend seized. He was so scared he could not turn the key and this was like what are you doing let's go let's get out of here and he, he couldn't move he finally came to his senses turned the key and he put it in gear and he still I've, I've been friends with him forever he still to this day cannot remember how he got out of there. All he remembers was he was so scared that he had to get out of there, but he didn't, he doesn't remember turning the key. He doesn't remember putting it in drive. He doesn't remember taking me home. Wow. That's how scared he was. I was terrified. I thought we were going to get, you know, die or something. And I do not know of any legends in that area or anything. I do not, I mean, and I, I grew up in that area, so I have no idea what it was. It could have been a bear, it could have been a cougar, it could have been anything. But to us, we we saw nothing in the rearview mirror. I was looking back through the back window, and I could see nothing. But you could clearly hear it and feel it. Yep. True, that- true story. That palpable feeling that there is something here. Like I said, when the lights hit it, we saw a shape. The brake lights, nothing. And um, that's the point of it is the only thing we had was that robe. And there was weird writing along the uh, frills where it joins. And... um, you know, it could have been a devil worshiper or whatever, but nobody was reported killed. No shots fired. You know, there was nobody reported the next day of anybody getting shot by some buck shot, which is, you know, rabbit shot. It's right. small. Or, you know, we probably would have been like, that was us, and it was them devil worshippers. And that was, you know, I, especially if you would have seen the mass amount of corn that flew into that little parking area. I mean, when we, when we drove out, it was massive. So there were supernatural things afoot. Right. Unless unless they had hundred or more people that already had picked the corn and were ready to throw it. And you know and just happened to know that eventually somebody was gonna park there. Well maybe not eventually. Well maybe yeah, yeah, they would have had to preposition it. But we walked through those cornfields to go hunting the rabbits to get to the prairie area. Right. So we didn't notice any stocks amiss. That's what the corn stocks. We didn't notice any stocks amiss. Nothing out of place. And you know, to this day, my son, uh, he wants to go to Woolly Burger. I said, well, if you go with me, you're safe. And he is. Anybody is if they go with me. 
but um, honestly, uh, it is somewhere that I tell people not to go to unless you know someone that uh, knows about the Willie Burger and all, uh, a few other things. So I want to go. Oh, you're more than welcome. If you take your son, I want to go. I carry six rounds that are silver for a reason. <laughs> that would be so much fun. Yeah, I had some silver dollars melted down into bullets. Maybe I we believe, could get your wife yeah. to go too. Oh yeah, oh yeah, she would. Well, maybe not because I took <laughs> her there one night, and uh, she didn't know about it. And I told her the story while we were out there, and uh, it was a date night, and I wanted to take her to the place. And I told her the story. This is back in the day, and she will not go back there. She could fill it, but she also she could fill, even though it's in the middle of nowhere, she could feel like something was watching. And I'm like, you're fine. We're going to be fine. Stop it. And it was full moon. And that's the night you don't want to go, folks. Full moon. Cause, uh, it just makes it, it a little more creepier. Yeah, well, it's not creepier. It's that's where the incidents usually happen, and yeah, missing people still happen. Remember the milk carton kids from the eighties? I believe I know oh where they go gosh. through. Yeah, down the throat. So uh, that's my two cents on that one, and that's my spooky story. But I've got others, but some of them are more funny than others. But in some, I'll never tell again. Told him once, and that's enough. But this one was one that I'd plumb forgot until I believe it was one of our friends and brothers uh, brought up a story of I can't even remember what it was. The Wampus Cat did it, and the old Indian tale. And that Indian tale was something. That and Indian tale was something. And he said he was going to call in, too. So, And I wanted him to tell that story. And he hasn't called in yet. He better be listening. If not, I'll kick him in the shins because he's still here. Oh, yes, he is. <laughs> both of them. Both of them. Both of them are still here. Yeah. I said, hey, love y'all. We get it. I'm telling you, folks, if you want to go to the best place for a campfire, <laughs> you got to go to Kate's campfire because there wasn't just one. There were two campfires. There was two going. Yeah. And it was raining. And you know what? You would never hear so much fun, joy, and happiness coming out of there. And then the kids got around. And everybody told us. And the dog. Yep. He he loves to be around everybody that he knows when he gets to know them. And uh, he's a good boy. And uh, we all love our fur faces. You're yeah, talking to dog people here. So uh, that's just the way that life bounces. But yeah, it was it was a beautiful, restful, lovely time. And it was very serene. And I think tonight's uh, Castle Talk Radio will reflect that. Because while it may be a distance to drive, and I had to do it for a reason, or I would still be down there with the rest of y'all doing it live, Around the campfire. Uh, there are pictures. And By the way, uh, I don't know if you want to take my number. You have a caller that uh, wants to get in. 801. Okay. Uh, I'll 801. Mute. Okay. 801, Mr. you're 801. live on the air. I would love 
So much love to hear your Indian story. Oh, hi, Kate. Hi, Kaiser. This is Hiker. How y'all doing? Hi, Hiker. We would love to hear your Indian story. Well, that's your thing. Yeah. Unless there's another story that you'd like to tell. Well, that's probably one of the better ones. Well, then tell a better one. (laughs) Well, no. This is more of a, well, this happened to me kind of story than a, you know, this is something that happened to somebody down in some gully someplace in 1827. Uh, That's a holler. That's called a holler, not a gully. Holler, holler, gully. (laughs) Well, anyway, (laughs) where I come from, that's called a a gully. Well, anyway, as you guys know, I worked as an archaeologist for a real long time, and I got to got to work with a lot of different interesting folks and a lot of interesting different cultures but well one day we were doing a remediation for the epa on a lead mine in uh oh in northern utah and uh well we were doing permitting for federal actions and so anything that had federal money or federal land involved had to be uh be permitted so we'd have to go through and, you know, they're scraping dirt for removing lead from these old mines and cleaning up, uh, you know, yards and stuff like that. They were putting in uh, new water tanks and towers. And that was why we were out that day, was to go check out a place for a new water tank. Now, like most folks do in Utah, they like to go out and pick up Indian artifacts and add them to their personal collections. And a lot of the areas are, well, a lot of the sites are pretty well picked over. So you usually don't see too much on the surface. So Danny, this one kid, that uh, young Mormon kid, real nice guy, uh, we uh, we were driving on out to the project area, and uh, we're just bopping along, telling jokes. He's feeling fine, and uh, we pull up to the project area, and we get out and take a few steps in, and pretty soon he's like, "Man, all of a sudden I've got a headache. I feel kind of queasy. It's like you've been drinking enough water." Oh yeah. We're talking high desert, you know, high mountain desert stuff. And uh, he's like, yeah, I've been eating, drinking plenty of water, eating a lot of food. And so, I'll tell you what, why don't you sit down? Here's a Snickers. Make sure you ate a bottle of water. I said, I'm just going to go on in there and scout it out. Come back in a few minutes and see how you're doing. Sure. So I go bopping on in. And uh, first thing I notice is a dozen grinding stones, patates, the bottom grinding stone. And each one has a mono on top of it, the handstone, matching the specific patates. But the thing is that they're in a circle and they've all been killed, which means they've been shattered. Each one was shattered by their own mono. And that means that somebody died. They released the spirits of that, the owner of that matate. Oh, wow. Because, yeah, so they killed it. And it's like, huh, that's really weird to see 12 killed batanis on the surface in a, in a circle. And uh, so I go scouting a little bit more, and I find this cliff. And down at the bottom of the cliff are hundreds of pots dropped down there just shattered. And I'm like, hmm, this is weird. So realizing I've got a pretty good-sized sight on my hands, I go back to check on Danny, and he still feels like crap. So I say, all right, man, I'll tell you what, we'll go back to the hotel, get you, get you situated and rest up and hopefully you feel better tomorrow. Like, yeah, let's do that. So we start down the mountain and 
we get out of there and he says, wow, suddenly I feel pretty good. When we go back there and get back to work, no, 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 I don't, don't want to risk it. Oh yeah, yeah, I need you. And uh, he's like, okay. So get to the hotel, he gets some dinner and goes to bed early. Get up in the morning, bright as rain. And uh, so we head back on up the mountain and uh, yeah, we get out there, hike on in and he just suddenly starts feeling woozy again. And I'm thinking we're in a mining area. It could be mine gas. Maybe I'm not affected. Maybe he is. So I said, well, what do you want to do? He's like, well, let's, uh, let's just tack a little. I'll tough through it. So we go out there and start recording the site. And I'm handling the groundstone, um, the, the matais and stuff, and taking pictures. And I looked up, and I noticed there was this kind of circular area, probably about, oh, 50, 75 feet in diameter, uh, that was grown up with a whole bunch of brush. And it was like all the brush was growing there. Like it was just stroke ground, but it was perfectly circular. And I said, hey, Danny, do me a favor and go on over there and check that area out and uh, see, see what you can see. And so he goes on up. And there's a stone circle around all this brush. And he walks in from the west side. And I, I watch him, and he gets he, he looks like he's getting pushed back. And he takes another step forward, and he gets pushed back again. He says, Jim, come check this out. So I walk on up to it and walk straight on in from the same place. And I feel physically uh, a force just push me uh, against my shoulder really hard. And like, well, that's weird. So I take another step forward and I get punched full force in the sternum and it took the wind out of me and I lift up my shirt and there's the imprint bruise of a human fist, knuckles and all right on my sternum and nothing I could see. And so I said, all right, Danny, let's record this thing as quickly as possible. We're going to call this whole site eligible. We're going to suggest avoidance, and we're going to get the heck out of here. So we did a really quick and dirty job on it, and we left. So, boy, it's probably, I don't know, 10 years later or so, I was doing, I was working with a bunch of tribes uh, in Wyoming, and well, we're doing some consultation and a lot of the sites involved stone circles. And so I told these guys that story. They all looked at each other and started laughing. They asked, which side did he walk in on? I said, the West. They start laughing harder. Like you never walk into the stone circle from the West. You always walk in from the East. You come in as the sun rises and go out as the sun sets. Otherwise the spirits will think you're a witch. I was like, so that was a, one of the guys interjected, he said, yeah, that was a mass murder. That was a, that was a massacre. Another tribe probably came on in there, killed everybody. Good Lord. And, and uh, killed all their, uh, their tools and their, their pottery and left. And then their people probably came on in and gave them a proper mass burial with a stone circle. But you just walked in from the wrong direction, and that's very dangerous. Wow. So, wow. So from that day on, I realized that, you know, I know very little <laughs> and uh, have to respect that stuff. So, yeah, 
that's my that's, real life kind of spooky story. Yeah, that that's a real story, and um, I'm flabbergasted. I got goosebumps right now, and I'm sure since it's on Kate's uh, campfire around the campfire, um, it's family friendly. The kids will be able to listen to this on Halloween and get spooked out because I know the kids listening actually around the campfire, the physical campfire. Oh, they, they were loving all the stories and, uh, yeah. And that, that's the joy of that campfire because it's just so harmonious that you can tell a spooky story, but they knew they were in a safe place and that's kind of the point, right? Well, they're, they're all really neat kids and just enjoyed the heck out of that weekend. And while it's still going on, there's there's the three of us sitting out here just enjoying the fire. By the way, we're also joined now by 614. Well, well 614 is just fire. 614 just joined the conversation. That How you means doing? they're from Columbus, so they know about Wooly Burger. So, Wooly Burger. Yeah, we just heard the Wooly Booger story. You did. Wow, that's scary. Has anyone ever heard about the young man, the ghost, up in Mountain, Ohio, along the River Road? No. Please do tell. Tell us about it. Yeah, do tell, do tell. Back in, back in colonial times there was a that was back when you were born right yeah it was back when i was born way back in the day (laughs) 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 and this young man and this young lady were in high school and they had started to see each other and he went to her house one night and received permission from, of course, back in those days, things were different. You had to ask permission to court and to spend time with each other. So he got to know her. She got to know him. The families intermingled and everything. And finally, he asked for permission to be able to go ahead and date her. Well, the family was of a certain stature, and he had was able to borrow his dad's buggy. And they set everything up. They had the lamps and everything, and they went to go ahead, and they were going to a dance. And he went ahead, and he picked her up. They went. They had a good time at the dance. Everything went well. And on the way home, they were along the edge of the river. And all of a sudden, there was a animal that darted out from the side of the road and completely startled the horse and the horse took off. They had absolutely no control whatsoever. So they're flying down the river road. He's trying to stop the horse. He does his best to get onto the horse. She pulled him back into the buggy and eventually they took a corner too fast and they landed in the river. They landed in the river She was able to get out. They were able to get the horse in the buggy. But they never found him. Oh, no. And they went 
and they searched for ever in a day. They went that night, they organized a search party. They were looking in the river and the section of the river had a large spot of moss in it. And it was a very mossy, like lily pad, kind of a, of a uh, concentration. And they searched for days, day in, day in, day out. They went ahead and they searched forever. Eventually they had a service remembering him. And she went on after a while and years down the road, she began to date again. And she and her date were out and she was with a different individual. They had a horse and a buggy and they were coming home. They had been out several times. The relationship was going well. And they were coming home one night and they heard moaning. Oh no. In the distance, they heard, oh, help me. Oh my gosh, I just got help chills. me. Oh my gosh. And they would stop and they would look and they would look with the lantern. And then the voice would stop. Well, this went on for a good year. And oh it didn't gosh. matter what the weather was. They could hear this voice in the middle of the night moaning, help me. One night they were coming home and it was in the springtime when they were having a dance. And dances back in the day were a big production. Everyone dressed up. Everyone oh, dressed up. It was a big doings. Heck yeah. Yeah, it was, was, yeah, it was, a, yeah it was a big doing back in the day. And they were coming home from the they were coming home from the dance. And he stopped the carriage and he was talking to her. And then all of a sudden they heard Help me Help me And they were looking and he was so close and she was like Tom, he is so close. He said, I know, Clarissa, where is he? And they heard, help me. And he was getting closer. It was getting louder. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a hand reached up on the top of the bottom of the carriage and grabbed her and said, help me. He was covered in moss. The horse took off, the carriage took off, and they left him. They went and they got everyone. They were absolutely mortified. They couldn't believe it. They knew who it was. It was Adam that they'd been looking for. And they went back and they looked. <laughs> they went back. They got everyone and they looked and they could see there was moss. There was moisture on the side of the road. But they never saw him again after that. Wow. Wow. Boom. Wow. Mic drop. That Yep. That's in that is from Danville, Ohio, actually. Danville, wow. Ohio, back in the day when I was in junior what back when I was elementary school. 
it was a big deal. They used to take all the city kids up there. And, and the guy uh, didn't eat the girl's was, liver, huh? Not this time. It was the next girl's liver that he ate. <laughs> Did he have it with some fava beans and some Chianti? <laughs> nice. Here. That helped me. Wow. That what a story. Is... Oh, my gosh. Now, hang wow. on just a second. Mrs. 614 probably has a story she can tell, too. Mrs. 614, nice. I'd really like to hear your story. So when I was a kid, my parents, I was in the You were a grade. kid once? You weren't born an adult? I know. It's hard to believe. I was a long right? time ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> exactly. That was the one. And um, so they bought this house. And I really didn't want to move there. I felt every time we would go out to this house, I just felt like there was something there telling us not to be there. And it always creeped me out. My mom has always been clairvoyant and has had the gift of being able to see spirits. She knew there was something in the house, but she wouldn't tell any of us that that was the case. So every time she would walk down the stairs, our dog would growl at a certain point and something would push her down the rest of the stairs, which was scary because there was a large window at the bottom of the stairs. So she, you know, kept saying, oh, I'm just tripping. Well, I was sick and I was sleeping and I woke up in the middle of the night to this woman in my room that looked a lot like my mom, but I knew it wasn't her trying to give me medicine. And I said, so my mom and I, I said, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And she said, well, just come play in the road with me then. And I said, told her, no, I'm, I'm not going out with you. And uh, the next morning I asked mom, because it was still very dreamlike to me. And I said, mom, why were you trying to give me medicine in the middle of the night? And she said, I wasn't. Later that day, a friend of ours from town came out with a picture that dated back into the early 1900s of a family portrait. And like there must have been 30, 40 people in this picture. And they said, Connie, do you see the lady that was in your room? And I did come to find out she was barren and never had children. And she oh, told wow. my mom one night that she wanted me. And <gasps> that's why she tried to give me medicine. Was she so trying to kill you to have mom, your spirit or what? She just, she, yes, she, she yes. wanted you. Wow. I had to be dead so she could have me. So she tried to get me to play in the road and um, just all kinds of things. And my mom said, you can't have her, but you can watch her with me. So um, that oh was the gosh. last time she bothered me after that. But yeah, it was really creepy growing up in this house. Uh, there's a room in my mom's house. I still will not go into at night. Why? Because it just, I can feel something is there that doesn't belong there. It's very menacing to me. And I'm oh, wow. scared to death of this room. Oh, my gosh. Yep. Wow. You can stand downstairs on the first floor and feel it. Oh, yeah. My, my kids, when they were little, would tell us about the monkeys and the windows. And it was because they seen the spirits. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my yeah. gosh. I got this it, oh was, my God. Uh, it was a neat house to grow up in, but uh, in hindsight, I don't know. It wasn't so much fun. 
a neat house to yeah. grow up in is creepy. Oh my gosh. Well, there was a house that we moved into when we first got together. Uh-huh. And the area that the expansion of the subdivision took place used to be a farm. And it was a large farm. It was a large, massive area. And before she moved in with me, every once in a while, the kitchen light would be turned off. I could, mm-hmm. we could be in the kitchen working. And all of a sudden, the dining room light, the light where the dining room table would be, would be turned off. Oh, wow. We could be sitting there and the light would turn off. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely ludicrous. And we never had a problem with that spirit ever. And that was the only light in the entire house. The touch light. The touch light. It was a touch light. And it was the only light in the entire house that that spirit would touch. Wow. Well, let me ask ask you guys something. Between Kaiser and Mr. and Mrs. Um, M, Um, you guys were here this weekend. Did you feel Mm -hmm. anything? A lot of love. Yeah. Um, There were a couple of times I felt creeped out. Um, Like I was being visited, but not in a not in a mean-spirited way, mm-hmm. um, more of a protected way. That's what I get up here as well. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Mr. M. Thank you. Um, yeah, that, um, that, that, that property up there, while you feel you're being watched, it's a very protective kind of a watch. It's a very reassuring kind of a feeling it isn't anything that um makes you feel concerned and we've all been to those places where we would walk into certain rooms and things like that and you feel that you you really feel unwanted now i'll preface this with we used to work in haunted houses and we you know it's uh while some people may say, oh, well, it was fun, let me tell you, if you're accepting and you don't freak out when you see and hear things, it makes all the difference in the world, your interaction in that situation. Wow. Here's, a, here's my thoughts uh, real quick. It was the most lovely gathering of people of all different places and all different things. And um, everybody knew, you know, there was nothing to fear. And Mm -mm. I I think it's from the area. I think Mm -hmm. there's, I do feel the Wampus cat. I feel that there's something that happened there at one time. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't know when, but Mm -hmm. that, that evil is over and mm-hmm. I I believe I know why and I'm not going to say it but uh, mm-hmm. I'm getting goosebumps by the way on my 
uh, <laughs> biceps and my forearms at this point and down my spine. Right. Um, yeah. But, I mean, it was a gathering of friends, and mm-hmm. I think that's the whole point that uh, it's about is that there is a way to uh, overcome it. And, it, and it's at a spiritual level. Mm-hmm. I believe, and, and I know this, uh, is that even if the supernatural has affected you at some point in your life, or even multiple points, um, mm-hmm. the only way to overcome it is to come to grips with it and to uh, be able to overpower it not by your own means because you can it's supernatural Mm -hmm. uh it's it's by acceptance of who you are what you are and also that you aren't the end all be all and the master of the universe or your ego is not driving and that is what i think is the cure for those kind of places your thoughts kate you know, I agree with you. I just, I do not know that much about the spirit realm to, or the supernatural realm, whatever you want to call it, to know or analyze anything. I know what I've been mm-hmm. through. I know what I've seen. I know what I've witnessed. I know what I feel, but I do not understand it if that makes sense. Um, and not from lack of trying. Um, I've tried communicating mm-hmm. and my, I, I, I have tried communicating, but then I get to the point of, do I really want to communicate? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's like, well, yes, I do want to communicate, but no, I don't. It's like one hand saying, come here, come here, come here. And the other hand pushing away saying, do not come near me. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, and it, it actually can be a very different experience. Now, the one thing that I do know is that the few of us who have actually served in the military, if you go to the where the veterans are buried at the um, National Cemetery in Pearl Harbor, mm-hmm. that is a place that will speak to you. That place will speak to you. Indeed. In, indeed. In what way? In what way? Explain. Oh, gee. If you're receptive, if, like I said, if you're receptive and you don't um, freak out, is probably the p- most polite word that I could possibly say when you encounter those situations, not all of those, not all of those spirits are necessarily hostile spirits they're searching they're trapped they're not in it they're, they're unable to leave where they're at and they're looking for some way to, to be released you know it's, i felt that when i was on the queen mary years ago mm-hmm. i felt it sounds this sounds really weird mm-hmm. but i felt a connection if that makes sense was that when the Queen Mary was in San Diego, or it may still be? I don't know. It was in Long Beach. Um, 
at the at the time. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. It was Long Beach because I went there. That's where our, our ship was ported. That was the USS Denver. Sorry about that. Then that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I was there several years ago, um, and I was there as a little girl, um, many many years ago. We we won't even count how many of those years are. I, but when I was there as a little girl, I felt a connection. And then I went back with a friend. I was visiting um, down there. I was doing some continuing education at um, UCLA Medical Center. And she said, hey, let's go to the Queen Mary. And so we took a day and went to the Queen Mary. You don't take just one day. You need to take two. And there is a strong spiritual connection there. Is that like the same thing as what you're talking about? Um, in in mm-hmm. Hawaii, yeah, you can feel that there, and I am. And my understanding is is that in Okinawa, um, that there are things that are heard and seen that can never be explained because of the number of mass suicides that took place because of the Japanese and what they had told people in the soldiers themselves refusing to, to, to be captured. Wow. So it, it, it isn't necessarily that you're abandoning your faith. You're not abandoning your faith at all, but when you are cool about it and you just accept it for what it is and don't tell that spirit that it's okay to, you know, come with you because you're asking for something that, that you can't get. That, that you really don't don't want because we finally told the spirit at the one place that we started out at almost 22 years ago, please leave us alone. And it never happened anymore after that. I can confirm Okinawa and let's leave this off for the next time. And unfortunately it will no longer be Halloween. And Kate, thank you for letting us come down and hang out around the campfire with Kate on Sundays, eight. Well, I am. I appreciate my callers calling in. I appreciate Kaiser joining me tonight. Say what? Oh, this ends a broadcast for me tonight. It was nice having you all join me beside my campfire. And I'm going to allow the campfire to die down. You know, my model train hard, train smart to survive, thrive, stay alive. This is Kate signing off. Until next time, join us at midnight tonight for Castle Talk.